0: Thanks, Chuck. That is that is really exciting to see uh, how God is moving uh, within the church. I'll put this in my pockets. Um, and through you, really. I mean, through the people of this church. You know, Chuck, like you said, you started here in 2002 and at work on Purpose Being Bird, that of Grace Chapel. And so many people from the very beginning getting involved and in impacting the lives um, of so many people around the city and so it's been a blessing to be a part of that and it's been really a blessing for us to see this campus alive seven days a week. You know, this community, if you will, this this campus community being alive seven days a week, not just on Sunday mornings, but uh, but, you know, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way through the week. There are people on this campus building relationships with one another, coming to know Christ, um, shopping here, playing here. I just love it. I love that we're a church that's alive uh, not just the church that meets here on one one specific day a week. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be continuing in our series. This is my community. And I want to focus on something that I feel is so significant to authentic community. And that is identity, knowing who you are, knowing who you are. Let me ask you a question. Do you why is it that we care so much about what other people think? Why do you care so much about what someone else thinks? We all do. We care so much sometimes. And do you ever wonder why you do what you do? You're, you find yourselves in certain situations and, and you behave in a certain way. Have you ever stepped back and thought about why is it that I behave that way? Have you ever claimed an idea as your own when you know you borrowed it from someone else? Whether it's at work or at school or whatever the case may be, you, know, you borrowed that idea from someone else. But then when you're put on the spot, you, you claim that you came up with the idea. Have you ever lied in a situation or embellished a story? to look better in the eyes of of other people? Um, Did you ever find yourself criticizing someone's performance or their decisions? And you criticize that person because you wanted to you criticize them in front of other people in a group of people because you want to look better in the eyes of those people. So you put someone else down and then you walk away from the situation. You ask yourself, why did I do that? Why, you know, you're in the quietness of your own home or in your own bedroom. You're kind of sitting there and you're asking yourself, why did I why did I do that? Why did I find it necessary to discourage someone else or put someone else down to elevate myself? Ever think those things through? The Bible tells us that we should consider others better than ourselves. But we seem to struggle with that idea. Because I think we have a lack of confidence in ourselves sometimes. So it's hard for us to elevate the other person. It's hard for us to put the other person first at work or whether it's at school in, on your team. If it's a teammate and, you know, you want to make sure the coach sees you and the coach looks at you and the coach puts you in and, and but the Bible's saying, no, consider others better than yourselves. Not, not don't do your best. Not don't be a doormat, but it's saying look around you and and build others up, encourage other people. But sometimes we don't do that because I think we lack we lack confidence. Have you ever done something um, to be accepted by a group of people, to be accepted by your peers, to be accepted by your friends, to be accepted at work and then regretted what you did? You find yourself in a situation in life and someone asks you to do something or someone challenged you to do something and and you just go along and do it because you want to be accepted by those people. Then you spend your time regretting why you did that again, sitting in the, in the quietness of your own room, asking why? Why did I do that? I didn't want to do it. I just did it. Do you ever wonder? Do you ever consider why you do what you do? I believe it's because of the way we think. It starts here. It's because of the way we think. I call it stinking thinking. I really do. Stinking thinking. I believe that if we understood at our core, okay, our core, how much God loves us, God's unconditional love. If we understood at the core of who we are, God's unconditional love and what he does for us and in us how he's created us, it would change our lives. It would, it would help us understand. It would help us get a better understanding and change some of our thought patterns. Because again, that's where it starts in our thought patterns. And in the process, it would help us change our behavioral patterns. It starts here. It goes from our thoughts to our, and and our attitudes and into our actions. And if we can, if we can truly understand the unconditional love of God and how he's created us and what he does for us and what he does in us, and what we are capable of through the Holy Spirit of God, it would change the way we think. And that, in turn, would change our behavioral patterns. Margaret Thatcher said this. I love this quote. Watch your thoughts because they become your words. Watch your words because they become your actions. Watch your actions because they become your habits. Watch your habits because they become your character. And watch your character because it becomes your destiny. And she closes with this. What we think we become. I want you to write that down. You have a pen. What we think we become. Keep that in your mind as we talk about this. What you think, what we think we become. It starts here. See, our problem is we often focus on on the behavior rather than the real issue, which is our thoughts. Our thoughts. Our thoughts are the core, the key to our identity. It starts here. But we end up in our lives running around chasing after our actions instead of looking to our attitudes, instead of looking to our thoughts. We're more concerned about behavior. In almost every area of our lives when we're raising our kids, Behavior action over attitude, and that's not the way we should think it starts in our minds. And so before we get to the heart of the discussion, I want to I want us to lay a little bit of a uh, give you a little bit of background. okay? a little bit of background here. The text I'm going to use to help us understand our identity is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now, I'm going to as I walk through this, I want you to stick with me, especially those who are in junior high. I encourage the junior hires to be here this morning, too. But I want you to stick with me and I want you to think, well, that doesn't apply to me. This really does. This is helping lay the foundation for what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. All right. So stick with me. All right. Hang in there. I want to talk about the, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians was written in A.D. 60. Around A.D. 60, about 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, it was written to a group of people in and around the city of Ephesus. So these people lived in and around the city of Ephesus. If you walk through the city of Ephesus, okay, you would find some amazing structures. I mean, this was this place was unbelievable. You find some incredible structures. Over, one of the structures that was truly amazing was the Temple of Artemis. This temple was, 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 was massive. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you can just imagine how, how majestic, how incredible, how dynamic it was. The footprint of this temple was the size of a football field. It had 127 60-foot marble pillars, 127 60-foot marble pillars. It was one of the largest buildings when it was finished. It was one. It was one of the largest buildings in the ancient world. So picture yourself. You're walking through this city, this massive structure. Well, if Ephesus had a theater that was 25,000 seats, you think, well, that's not so big. Think about the time we're talking about here. We have 50,000 seat stadiums, state of the art stadiums, and some colleges are over 100,000. But 25, a 25,000 seat theater—that, my friends, is impressive. It's impressive. Another structure in Ephesus was called the Agora, which was the entryway. This was this was a structure had it had it had a structure of, of, of triple archway, these massive triple archways that that led you into the marketplace. The marketplace was so massive, you can get just about anything in this marketplace. You could buy just about anything you wanted at that time in history in this marketplace. It was a hundred yards by a hundred yards. It was like two football fields. That's how massive it was. So you can imagine going through these massive archways, three massive archways and walking into this, this marketplace, this giant shop, you know, shopping center, if you will, the mall of its day. It was a monster. Go around, they're selling just about everything. Ephesus, my point is this Ephesus is not some, not just a bunch of dusty streets with some old buildings and chicken and goats running around. Right, because that's what we think sometimes. Talk about Ephesus, and we talk about different places in the ancient world. You think, yeah, there's a couple couple old shanty shacks and a dirt street with dust coming up, and there's chickens and goats walking around, you know. And you're just kind of—that's what you think sometimes. This was a world-class city, if you will, of its time. This was a world. Think of the large cities in the United States. This was a world-class city of its time. Ephesus was pretty amazing. But like all big cities and this is okay. so we got the background. I want you to hold on to the background. Ephesus, what it was like, this massive city. But like all of these big cities, like any big city, it came with its problems. It was filled with prostitution and liars and thieves. It was filled with people who 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 were godless people who had violent tempers. They were drunks. I mean, it was just you can imagine And it was into this environment that Paul came into the city and began to preach the gospel. So you have this massive city, you have this cultural center, if you will, you have all these things going on. And this is the city into which Paul enters and he begins to preach the gospel. And Paul stays there for a little over two years. He leads people to Christ And then he leaves. So so get us all down. You got Ephesus. We got the background of Ephesus, how amazing it was, you know, a place filled with drunks and and prostitute prostitution and thieves and liars and all these things going on. This is the the gospel had not come there yet. Paul comes in. He starts sharing with a group of people and and he begins to, to to share the love of Jesus Christ. They come to Christ and their hearts are changed. But then he leaves. Paul ends up leaving. But he leaves people with new hearts. But these new hearts are now fighting old habits. They're in battle. They're in a battle with old habits. Every single person here can understand what I'm saying. Who knows Christ? You know, you get a new heart. Your heart changes. You're excited. You know, there's an, there's an enthusiasm and excitement. Christ is coming to your life. And you, you kind of put aside those old habits, all those old ways, all those old ways of thinking and those old ways of acting because Christ is now in your heart. But then Paul leaves and over time, their new heart begins to battle with their old habits. Without Paul, people start to, they start, to, they start to fall away. They start to fall back into their old thought patterns, which leads them back into old behavioral patterns because they forgot who they were. They had forgotten who they were. Paul was gone. And they began to forget who they were. Have you ever wandered away from Christ and forgotten who you were? I don't think anyone here is going, I don't understand those people. Oh, how can they do that? I mean, we have each other. We have, I mean, we have, we have the Bible. We have the Word of God, but we still—I find everybody here could say at one point or another they probably wandered a little too far away from Christ. Some people have wandered way too far away, and you find yourself at some point going, "How did I get here? How did I find myself?" Honestly, you've probably been in situations where you're actually in the action act of doing something. Okay, how did I find this in my hand? How did I find this in my hand? How did I find? How did I find myself in this position? How did I get here? I'm a Christian. But over time, your mind started to drift. Your thoughts began to drift. You forgot you had forgotten who you were and your habits, your old habits come back in. The world begins to suck you back in and you find yourself in a situation. And that's exactly what the people of Ephesus were doing. They found themselves in this situation. The letter to the Ephesians was a letter reminding these believers of who they were. This letter was reminding them. It was reminding them what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul is helping them. Here's what he's doing. He's helping them recapture their true identity. When he writes this letter to them, he's saying, I want to he's trying to help them recapture their true identity to start working on their minds and walking, working on their thought process and help them recapture who they truly are in Christ. He says, remember, he wants to remind them of that. And I love the way he does. I get goosebumps in first service and the second service actually thinking about it right now. I love the what he does right here. And take notes Get the CD, get the get the get the CD, and listen to it again because you can apply this to your family. You can apply this to other relationships. The way Paul handles this situation is amazing. Absolutely love it. He breaks the Book of Ephesians into two sections: chapters one, two, and three, and chapters four, five, and six. I'm going to jump to four, five, and six. In chapters four, five, and six, Paul basically confronts specific behavior. He goes to and starts to confront specific behavior. He goes after lying and deception in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. And he says this, each of you should speak truthfully to his neighbor. Speak truthfully to his neighbor. And then in in chapter four, in verse twenty six, he goes after anger. He says in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. He goes after the way they're speaking. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you start to wander away from Christ, doesn't your language begin to change a little bit? Right. You find yourself. You say, well, I haven't said that word in a long time. Maybe your finger goes up one too many times of people in the car. Right. You start wandering away and all of a sudden your habits start coming back. Your hands start doing the wrong things. Your mouth starts doing the wrong. Everything starts doing the wrong things. And so he goes after speech in Ephesians chapter four and verse twenty nine. And he says, let no unwholesome words come out of your mouths, but only that which is helpful for building others up. And then in Ephesians chapter five and verse three, he addresses sexual sin. He says uh, he says, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality, but among you, let there not even be a hint of sexual morality. I have studied the word hint. when I was a youth pastor. I, I, I went, I studied that word. You know what that word means? That word basically starts in the mind. It's not about actions. It's about mind. A hint starts here. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what he's dealing with. He wants them to work, he wants to work on their minds. He wants them to start from the very, very beginning. He, go, he goes on in, in verse in chapter four and verse twenty eight He starts talking about stealing. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may be that they may have something to share with those in need later on he starts talking about families so four, chapters 4, 5 and 6 he's going through all these things man stop stealing stop lying stop the sexual behavior stop this stop the drinking, and stop all. and then he goes into families husbands here's how you're supposed to treat your wives wives here's how you're supposed to treat your husbands fathers here's supposed how you're supposed to treat your kids kids here's how you're supposed to respond to your parents he goes through all those things in, in chapters 4, 5 and 6. And he's writing this to Christians. Now understand he's writing this to Christians. And all of this, all these writing happens takes place in chapters 4, 5 and 6. And as he addresses these issues, he keeps the focus on their minds, okay? Realize that he's going after he's he's bringing up the actions, but first he's talking to them about their minds. About their attitudes. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 20 through 24. He says this. That, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ. Remember he's, now he's writing back to them. He led them to Christ. He's writing to them. And we're taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught in regards to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And listen to what he says. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So in four, five, and six, bang, 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 he's talking about, he's talking about the, your, your actions and what you shouldn't be doing, but he says, I want you to start here to change the attitude of your mind. So the question would be then, what does he talk about in chapters one, two, and three? This is the Bible. These people are running amok. They're doing all kinds of things. They're falling back into old habits. And so what does Paul, what does the apostle Paul say to them in chapters one, two and three? Basically, basically all he does in the first three chapters. Listen to this. This is profound. This will change your family life. All he does in the first three chapters is remind them of who they are. He doesn't get all caught up in what they, it, it, he's reminding them of who they are. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, listen is what he says. Therefore, remember. Remember, 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 therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles at birth and he goes on in Ephesians chapter two and verse 12. He says this. Remember that at that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Remember, remember, remember. I want you to read Ephesians again this week. That's your homework. Read Ephesians again. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. He really doesn't tell them to do anything for three chapters. Doesn't say do this and do this and stop doing this. And why are you doing that? He doesn't say it for three chapters. He doesn't tell them to do anything for three chapters. It is brilliant. It's a brilliant. Brilliant strategy. He doesn't attack them for backsliding. These people are all backsliding. You go there for two years, you waste two years, not waste two years, but that's what we'd be thinking. Two years of my life with you people. What is wrong with you? You know, it's like me going on vacation and hearing, man, they're all running amok. You know what I mean? It's like people are coming in drunk to church and people carrying on and whatever else. What's going on there? I've only gone for a week. Right? He doesn't say anything. They're backsliding. He doesn't say to do one thing. He doesn't address any of their actions at all. Instead, he just reminds them. Listen to me. He just reminds them of who they are. I want you to dwell on that for a second. I want you to think about that. He just reminds them of who they are. Knowing who I am can change my behavior. Think about that. Knowing who I understanding who I am, if I can regain, if I if Paul can get them to regain, understand to remember who they are, then that will change their behavior. You know, I I applied this principle when I was when Kim and Jen were growing up. And what I would do is I would just sometimes just remind them of who they are. I would just I didn't really think about it in the, in, in the context of Ephesians, but I would just remind them of who they are. And if they if I didn't think they're reading their Bibles or they were starting to drift a little bit, I would just say, well, why, why would you not want to read? I don't understand. Why would you not want to read your Bible? It's your relationship with Jesus Christ, not mine. So, you know, I'm just curious what what's causing you not to want to read your Bible. And I would leave it there. I, 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 instead of telling them to do you go in your room right now and you read your Bible. I never did that my entire life. Forced my children to read the Bible or force my children to pray or force my children to do this. I obviously want them to do certain things, but I never forced them in that way. I would I would try to remind them of who they were. You're you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, why would you not want to? In a sense, why would you not choose to do that? See, when you do that, you motivate people from the inside out. Think about it. you start to motivate people Intrinsically, not extrinsically, I can force you if I'm stronger than you, I can force you to do things. But that's not true. Motivation, intrinsic motivation looks at a person's heart and tries to get them to move from the inside out, not from the outside in. And so you need to motivate that way. See, if you want to change a person's behavior, you change the way they think. If you want to change a person's behavior, you change a person's mind. Every despot, every bum criminal, leader, dictator knows this truth. They do. From, from Hitler to Stalin, whatever they all had the, they all grabbed the younger ones and brainwashed them in the wrong way, but they understood this principle. If you want to change someone's behavior, you change that person's mind. So you know, even, even the worst of people can take truths, okay and apply them. That's true. See, if we were in Paul's place, most of us, I believe, would be really freaked out again uh, about what they were doing. Look what they're look what they're doing. So since they are doing this, I want to stop them from doing this. I'm going to focus my attention on what their attitude, their actions on their actions. Most of us would focus our attention. The first three chapters. I would I would have flipped it around most likely if not thinking about it I would have been like what the heck are you people doing you look how much time I spent with you and boohoo and stop doing this and stop doing this and stop doing this and the last chapter I'd say the grace of God go with you. you know what I mean? I love you guys, you know, so hope I didn't, you know, hammer you too hard or whatever the case may be. Ah, not Paul, not Paul. This is amazing the way he pulls this out. He doesn't focus on what they're doing. He focuses on their attitudes instead of focusing on what they're doing like we would do for three chapters. He talks about their identity. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you are over and over and over again. Because often, my friends, listen to this. We behave the way we behave because we think the way we think. Jot it down if you can. We behave the way we behave because we think the way that we think. When it comes to our identity, we are so far off sometimes. We are so far off when it comes to how, why we have a certain identity or how we get our identity. We are so far off in our thinking, the way we think about our identity. So many people find their primary identity in what they do, in what they do. And that is a terrible mistake. It's it's just a terrible mistake when you try to find your identity in what you do because if for example if you're a successful business person and then the economy changes do you go from being a someone to a no one overnight see when the economy's good if you're a successful business person and you have your identity in what you do and things are going well then you feel good about yourself Right. You feel really good about yourself. You are a somebody today. But then the economy shifts. And what happens? You become a nobody the next day because you lost your job or you're not as successful as you were before. The economy shifts all the time. So you're basing your identity on something that's shifting around. Your identity should not be completely tied, my friends, to the economy. It shouldn't be tied that way. We should not. It should not be at the core of our identity because it is constantly shifting. It is constantly changing. It's an ever-changing thing that's going on. It is a, it is a, the foundation, if you build your identity on what you do, your foundation is weak and ever-changing. So today you can feel one way about yourself and tomorrow you feel completely different about yourself. I've seen this happen. Back in 2007, I watched people who felt very confident in themselves. They knew exactly who they were until 2007 and eight, and then they had no idea who they were they had no idea who they were because they were no longer doing what they used to be doing if you're a student you play a sport you shouldn't have your primary identity in your sport why because what happens when you hurt your knee what happens if you break your arm what happens when you graduate from high school or you graduate from college you graduate from whatever what happens when the when the, your pro career is over you know, people were totally confused by Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow bringing his religion into football. Tim Tebow wasn't bringing his religion into football. Tim Tebow was bringing his identity into what he was into his circumstances. And when he leaves football, he'll bring his identity into being a businessman, if that may be the case, or if that's what he wants to do, or he'll bring his identity into being a missionary, or if he switches from being a missionary back to being a business person or a business person back into being a football player, guess what? His identity comes with him because his identity is found in Jesus Christ. He's not confused by who he is, depending on where he is. His circumstances are not confusing to him. It confuses the rest of everyone else in the world who says, Why are you bringing this into it's who I am? I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. So if you're a student, you should not have your identity based upon that sport or your intellect. That can be your secondary identity, but it cannot be your primary identity because those things will change over time. Other people find their identity in how they look. Another tragic mistake. They find their identity and how they look. Some people spend so much of their lives worrying about getting older. Oh, am I getting older? Look, at oh, I got it. Oh, oh, you know, everything is like doing funky stuff in your body. And you're like, what happened? You, you know, it used to be here. Now it's there. And you're all confusing. And, and it's totally, <laughs> right, right. And so you're, 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 you're constantly worrying about getting older. You're staring in the mirror, mirror, thinking what you need to fix, what you need to fix, what you need to fix. What do I need to fix about myself so I still know who I am or I I have my identity? Proverbs says that beauty is fleeting. You know why it says that beauty is fleeting? Because it is. Right. It is. It is. I mean, I you remember that I, I, on Facebook. If you're on my Facebook friend, like about a month and a half ago, I posted a picture or someone posted a picture of me when I looked like Vinnie Barbarino with the hair part in the middle. Real big. I was three inches taller back then. My hair stuck up so far. It was awesome. I was like six, seven back then. And then and then over time, things changed. My hair got shorter. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, things change. I don't have the same face I used to have. I don't have the same strength I used to have. Well, maybe that a little. No, but I don't have. I'm not. I'm not who I used to be. Why? Because your appearance, your your body, oh, that stuff changes. And so we can't have our primary identity and how we how we look. When we find our primary identity in anything else other than Christ, it ends. It usually ends and you find yourself. In fear, in frustration, and in disappointment. Because all the things I'm describing to you all have the ability to change. Jesus Christ. Does not change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. We need to find our identity in Jesus Christ. Now, as we explore these verses in Ephesians chapter one, we're going to go through the next like three or four weeks. We're going to explore these verses. This is just the kind of intro to this, to what we're going to do here. We're going to explore these verses. and As we explore these verses, we see that Paul did something absolutely amazing for these for these struggling and confused believers. He helped them to find their way back. Back. And he did that in a very unique way. He used some, he used some rich imagery to help them, to con, that imagery that they could connect with, that they could understand. And so over the next few weeks, I want to talk about three areas, three images that he uses, three images that Paul uses, redemption, adoption, and sealing. And you say, what the heck is that? How does that apply? It so does. Remember, I, I say to you all the time, theology matters. Paul in his brilliance, first three chapters, okay, talks about redemption, adoption, and sealing. And he's telling them, he reminds them of who they are. That's how he does it. He uses truth to bring them back to the reality of what's most important to them, what should be most important to them. And those are the three areas, the three the three um, rich imageries that he uses to do that. Now, my goal is to help each one of us, every single person here, understand who they are, to find their true identity, because when we find our true identity, we can enter into authentic community. Right. If we know who we are and we find our true identity, we can enter into together authentic community, because I was thinking about this as before I wrote these sermons, I thought. Well, how can we truly get closer together? And like the Holy Spirit put in my mind, it's hard for people to be an authentic community if they don't know who they are. If you don't know who you are, how can you enter into that kind of community? We will never truly connect with each other if we don't understand who we are. Think about that. How can I truly connect with you if I don't know who I am? How can I share with you? How can I how can I help you understand? There's, there's a... a the guy, my name is Orson Scott Card and he had this quote and I just really liked it it says perhaps it's important to, to wear and I I'm sorry perhaps it's impossible to wear an identity without becoming what you pretend to be perhaps it's impossible to wear an identity without becoming what you pretend to be are you pretending to be someone that you're not Are you pretending to have this being be someone that you're not because you don't know who you are? The reason people often pretend to be someone that they're not is they don't really understand who they are. They don't they don't truly grasp that. How can how can I know the real you in a relationship if you don't know the real you? How can you know the real me if I don't know the real me? So we have these, uh, you know, online personas and we have this persona at school. and We have this persona over here. We have these, you know, who we want to be. And we we kind of put ourselves in that we pretend. But the problem is sometimes you become the person you're pretending to be. And that's not who God has created you to be. Most people build their foundation for their identity on conditional, unconditional uh, uh, th- thought processes. We build We build our identity on on a conditional foundation, on a conditional worldview. And that worldview says, I will love you if I will accept you if I will love you. I will accept you if if you behave this way, if you if you act this way at school, if you talk, you speak this way. If you drink what I drink and smoke what I smoke or do what I do or have sex or whatever the case may be, I will I will love you if. And I will accept you if. And that's the foundation on how, where so many people build their, 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 their their idea of who they are, their true identity. And it's not their true identity. God designed you. God designed you with a specific purpose. Who better to know who you are than the one who created you that purpose that God created in you will never be found outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You will never truly know who you are without a relationship with Jesus Christ, because he is the one who made you. He knows you better than yourself, and he is the one who gave you a purpose, and he is the one who gives you your identity. And if you don't have a relationship with God, how can you truly know yourself? You'll just keep chasing, my friends, what you're never going to catch. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You keep chasing. You'll just keep chasing after what you're never going to catch. You keep looking for something you will never find. Trying to meet expectations that you're never going to meet. Because the expectations are changed. They're coming from other people to try to lead you into a pattern that they want you into what they want you to be. You will keep searching and trying to find and meet expectations that you're never going to meet. God loves you. He loves the you that he created you to be. Stop trying so hard to be someone else. Stop trying so hard to be the person that other people want you to be. That is not you. That is not you. We need to know who we are. Listen, we need to know who we are and then we need to learn to love each other the way God loves us. We're never going to be perfect, but we need to try to love one another the way God loves us unconditionally, unconditionally. And that is what I want us to learn over the next few weeks, who we are. I want each one of us to understand who we are, who we are truly. What is our identity? That is found in Jesus Christ. And then how can we show that unconditional love to one another? Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for this time we can spend together. And Father, I just pray for each one of us that we would seek out who you are first. Understanding who you are and who you created us to be. We have to know you, Lord, in order to know ourselves. Help us. Help us to know you. Help us to receive that unconditional love that only you can give. And may that be our foundation. And then, Father, teach us to love each other the way you love us. In Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.